Hello and welcome to Empathetic Witness Podcast. I am Angelina Pratt, your host. Today, I'd like you to join us with a conversation with Dr. Jay Workman. Jay is a Métis doctor practicing in British Columbia. This recording is on the Algonquin First Nations unceded territory. Well, welcome to Empathetic Witness. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today. Um, I I talked to you a while back, um, and that's how I found out you were doing some work with um, um, diabetes and had been and was working with the um, the federal federal government in policy, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think it was Maggie Hodgson that was, you know her, and she was telling me about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so I'm excited to talk to you. And I, what I would like to begin with, Jay, is can you give us some background to what led you to become a doctor? I mean, it. Oh. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Well, I grew up in northern Alberta. Mm-hmm. Came from a Métis family way up in the far north. Uh, and I started, I, I finished high school when I was 16, and I went out and worked in construction. Mm. And uh, I loved it. And I worked in the bush in the north. I eventually got working on big projects like the tar sands and things. And I actually wore a hard hat for 10 years. And then... I got tired of kicking mud off my boots and I decided to go back to school. So I did a science degree and then I went to med school. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that, <laughs> that's the short version. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's lots of stuff in between. Um, I, I spent as a child, I spent a lot of time in the hospital and I've always had an interest in, you know, medicine and doctors and, um, and so I was quite curious as to what led you to becoming an MD. And I didn't know if as a child you had interest in that, you know, if somebody in your family was sick or had an illness and that led you to, you know, the discovery of helping people. There was a, there was a factor. Yes. When I was four, I got, di- I, I, I got polio. Oh. And we were in... Fort Vermilion, which is a very small village way up in the north end yep. of Alberta. Yeah. And I always remember the kind old doctor who looked after me, you know, uh, always wore a white shirt, you know, and I, I that was a very a memory that was very internalized with me about the caring and healing uh, that I experienced because of him. Mm-hmm. And I had a severe case of polio. So I, was that my parents were told I was going to die, and I, I obviously didn't. Yep. I think there was an imprint made that far back, you know, that predisposed me to medicine. Yeah. Well, that's a natural thing. I mean, especially if you were um, 
you know, treated with respect and caring, right? So you felt that comfort, that safe zone in, yeah. in the treatment. I know, you know, I follow a number of doctors on Twitter, and there's mm-hmm. an Indigenous doctor in BC who often is tweeting <laughs> about, you know, the inequalities of how Indigenous people are being treated, and specifically Indigenous doctors, and mm. not being seen for their their education and the background and their experience they bring to the conversation as an Indigenous doctor. Have you experienced any of that type of, I guess it's racism? Well, I've witnessed it. I don't mm-hmm. feel like it's been directed at me anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I could pass for Italian, you know, I, People don't automatically think I'm indigenous, but I've witnessed discrimination in the system of patients, you know, and it's, you know, it's really, it's heartbreaking that that still happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, as an indigenous person, it's hard to not go there when something doesn't, if you're not really satisfied with the, the health care you're given, And I've never experienced that myself, but, you know, I I was, I was in residential school for seven years. And Mm -hmm. I think the background noise for me is, you know, I kind of think, you know, could it be racism that this happened to me, you know, and I, I, but I don't entertain it for very long. I kind of just brush it off and, and look at other indicators of why something didn't uh, why I'm not satisfied with some some treatment I'm getting. And mm-hmm. I also am a very strong um, advocate of doing your own stuff to make, you know, so if you're not, if you're dissatisfied, if I'm dissatisfied with some treatment, then I will search a more satisfactory route to go in, you know, so I, and I find that, you know, Indigenous people often won't question the treatment they're given. And I like to believe that we should always question, you know, and look for things that are that meet our needs. And we should always question where the, you know, the um, the root cause of whatever illness we have. And just getting back to your your. Um, what you just said about, you know, being diagnosed with polio. I mean, it was back in the day, it was a very serious illness. I mean, it was a respiratory illness and a neurological illness that often was treated as, you know, for some polio victims, it was treated as orthopedic rather than a neurological disease that that affected the breathing capacity of people. So it, not not a lot of new doctors are familiar with the history of polio. I, they, I don't know how much you were taught in medical school about that. Uh, well, by the time I got to med school, there was no polio in virtually the whole world. There's still a few places now, but nobody yeah. would have seen polio in my cohort, you yeah. know. 
So, yeah. But, uh, you know, when we, we were in this tiny village and my father was a teacher in the school and my mother ran the post office and our house was quarantined. Nobody was allowed to leave. Um, and But I remember uh, the community supported us. I remember a bag of toys was left on the doorstep for me. Um, the store would bring our groceries and drop them on the doorstep. So, you know, the community was so supportive. And I, I always remember that part as well. Yeah. So, and the thing about, yeah, it's a neurological, it, it causes paralysis. And then yes. people have lifelong disability from it. And I was really lucky. I, I was paralyzed when I had it, but I recovered pretty much. And over, over years, it all kind of got sorted out. Yeah. So I was lucky. I was very lucky. You know, it was one of my, I used up one of my nine lives there, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I read some, um, I guess, research papers on people that have had polio. And there's quite a few famous people, you know, Dan, um, Donald Sutherland, Neil Young, um, I think even Joni Mitchell. But I think there's a characteristic you know, that some polio victims end up cultivating and it's a strength. It's an inner strength. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Paul Martin, our former prime minister, had polio. Yes. Yeah, quite a few people. It's surprising, really. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's that's really speaks to just the the fighting spirit because you have to, as a, if you're infected with some kind of disease like that, you know, it takes some internal, internal energy to, to yeah. get better. Right. And so it's a pretty good segue to go into how are you finding, you know, your experience with polio and because it was an infectious disease and with the recent pandemic and all the things, the protocols that have been in place with the pandemic. Um, do you find that, does it remind you of stuff? I know you were quite young, but is there some familiar and... Well, during, you know, before the polio vaccine was available, and it was a very effective vaccine, mm. um, polio, when polio was in loose in the community, People were fearful. I mean, they kept their kids at home. They didn't, they wanted to do everything they could to avoid exposure. And that was just, a, you know, it wasn't a government mandated lockdown, yeah. but people instinctively, you know, drew in and circled the wagons, you know, and, and to, to avoid it. So this, with the, the pandemic uh, response, um, the government mandates and lockdowns and so on all that is now being analyzed in hindsight mm. and it's quite, quite interesting to see uh the opinions that are coming along now the thing i find most fascinating about it all was the uh suppression of discussion mm. about it yes and uh, that's starting to come out now you know the um you know with uh musk buying twitter and uh, information coming out of the other big tech uh, companies showing that government had access, uh, authorities had access, and were able to shut down discussion yeah. of, of these things. Uh, any discussion that challenged the government policies, which 
you know, it just boggles my mind that this was happening. And, uh, and, and, you know, I also um, very interested in what's going on in China. Mm. The extent to which they're using technology there to try and control people and shut down the protests against the Chinese mandates, which are, you know, very, very severe and outdated, in my opinion. I don't think it makes sense to do that anymore. Might have at the beginning when people didn't really understand what was going on and were very fearful. So it's it's a whole the whole thing is fascinating uh, now. But I'm I'm really watching and reading the uh, the postmortems. You know the 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 articles that are now coming out, looking at what worked, what didn't work, and did did we go too far in some cases? Mm. The mandates, the vaccine mandates, were they justified? Things like that. So it's. The whole thing is fascinating, I, I find. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, anytime you look at hindsight, right, and you, you look at what was done and whether or not, I mean, the pandemic in, was it 1918, yeah. which was similar. I mean, and so, you know, I think we've looked back into that and how that was handled. Mm-hmm. And we're looking back into, you know, this, this pandemic and will continue to yeah. review these these different protocols for probably years to come. They'll be studied. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that's good because, you know, as long as we continue to look back, we can improve, right? Um, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Happen. Yes, I mean, we are just human after all, and we've got these follies that yeah. create, yeah. So I think this is a good good segue into what I really wanted to talk to you about, which was um, I I watched a number of interviews that you did, and it's been a few years now, I think one, like it was like over six years ago that you did on, on diabetes and the diet that you're, that you recommend and how to, to uh, control diabetes. And I know this is personal to you because then you, you also discovered that you had diabetes, which I think shocked you as a doctor that, hey, I have this, you know, how did I not notice these things were happening and take care of it sooner? So let's, let's dive into that part of the discussion, like how you, how you first discovered you had it and what led you to that discovery? Like, you know, were you just thirsty and and uh, feeling fatigue, or was it a test result that clued you into the fact that you had diabetes? Well, I had a strong family history, you know, all on my mother's, uh, you know, the Métis background there, everybody had diabetes in her family eventually, or heart disease, which are linked. And um, I was working for Health Canada at the time, stressful job, these government jobs are stressful, you know. <laughs> so, um, and uh, I had just about every symptom of diabetes before I actually, before it actually dawned on me mm. that I check. Yeah. And I, I had gained weight. I was lethargic. I had blurry vision, you know. Mm. I was grumpy, you know. It, and then one day I was in the bathroom and uh, we had this beautiful house in the uh, rainforest here. And I remember it was a rainy November day and I'm in the bathroom looking in the mirror thing. 
you, you look like crap, you know. <laughs> and I had some test strips there, urine test strips. So I checked and I was off the chart, you know, for sure. And uh, yeah, it was a surprise to me. Like, how could you be so dumb? And, um, you know, and what, what does this mean? And my son, my little boy, was two at the time. <clears throat> I loved him dearly. And it just, that, the thought that my life expectancy was short shortened by this disease was the thing that really mattered to me at that moment because of my son like i'm not going to be around long enough for him you know that that kind of those kind of thoughts those dark yes. thoughts and i was not doing clinical practice at the time and uh i was i felt like i was out of date in terms of what the treatments would be Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to buy a little time to sort of look into it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm last thing that occurred to me was go to a doctor. Right. But so I, uh, uh, I, I didn't want, I wanted to minimize the blood sugar, my blood sugars. And I knew, I knew enough at that point that uh, carbohydrate foods are what raises your blood sugar. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to stop eating carbs until I get this figured out. Mm. So I knew nothing about low carb diet. I didn't even know about the Atkins diet. And uh, in, miraculously, within days, my symptoms were fading away, and my blood sugar was normalized. It happened very quickly, and I lost. I started losing weight at a pound a day. I lost wow. about thirty pounds in a month, wow. and it just weight just fell off me. I had a good friend who was convinced that I had cancer, and I wasn't telling anyone because of my sudden weight loss. Right? Yes. And uh, this surprised me. It really surprised me because I, I'd been trained in management of diabetes and practiced for a while before I went to in a bureaucratic job. And nowhere along that path did anyone ever say, maybe if you cut carbs, it would help. Because yes. the standard approach is keep eating carbs and, uh, you know, the way I look at diabetes is you've developed an intolerance to carbs. Yeah. You keep eating carbs and bad things happen to you. So that's the definition of a food intolerance. So I I I started to question what what are we doing here? This this seems to work so brilliantly. Yeah. Why didn't I hear about it before? Why isn't it being taught? Yeah. You know, where's the research, you know? And that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it took me on a different path. You know, I became very interested in this and got involved, you know, and connected with American uh, researchers who were doing some work in this area, uh, connected it, connected the dots to First Nations, you know, mm -hmm. change in diet among First Nations, how, how that is driving uh, the epidemic of diabetes there. Yeah. So I started connecting these dots and I got involved in all kinds of different things. Uh, related to diet and diabetes. Well, that's that's amazing because I mean, often I mean we know, I mean the average person knows, you know, breads, rice, grains, are are bad in some way, but they don't connect it to the fact that they turn to sugar, yeah. right? They don't, you know, they'll say, you know, have you stopped eating sugar? Oh yeah, I don't put sugar in my tea. I don't put sugar in my coffee. Yeah. But they don't say, "Well, I quit eating bread," <laughs> and it's the hardest thing to quit eating because it's so darn delicious, right? It's addictive. It's addictive. <laughs> yeah. 
There's addiction yeah. pathways involved. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the sugar does, right? It, it creates that addiction. You need to have it. And so it becomes much more difficult to, to, um, to quit. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, in indigenous communities, I mean, I think largely my family, you know, what they eat. So, you know, there's, I remember as a child, we had bannock with mm-hmm. lard, right? So we would put lard. Sometimes that we would put, um, it would be animal fats. We'd put that on, on our bannock. But mm-hmm. nowadays I see people eating bannock. I, I mean, I do make bannock, but I make it with, with different different things that's not with flour, you know, and, but it's really hard to stop. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, quite impossible unless you have a real strong will to, mm-hmm. and you, and you connect the dots to the disease, to diabetes. And you really understand that diabetes, like you said earlier, reduces your lifespan. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, but I find, and you probably find that, as a doctor, what gets patients to click in to the fact that they need to make a change or they'll die? It's like a, it's like an alcoholic. You can tell him or her that you know continually consuming these spirits, you know, like the vodka and whiskeys, will reduce their lifespan. And it's mm-hmm. going to kill them, but they continue to do it, and they don't connect the dot that it will kill them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that type of psyche in your in patients? Like, how do you get them to wake up to the fact that they need a lifestyle change? It, that that's a fascinating question because. For a lot of people, they self-medicate with these comfort foods. They're self-medicating for anxiety, stress, trauma, you know, uh, you know, mental disorders. And these comfort foods uh, give them brief a brief respite. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to reward myself by having a big warm piece of bannock with some. Br- Butter and, uh, or unfortunately, people use margarine, but butter and uh, uh, jam on it, or something, you know, and a cup of tea that's sweet, you know. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that sound comforting, you know? Uh, this is what happens: people self-medicate with these kinds of foods, which are which are the ones that harm you. And it's the same with other substances. We self-medicate with alcohol. We self-medicate with drugs, you know, uh, um, illicit drugs, and they give you short-term relief and long-term pain Mm. worse in different ways yeah so you have to you have to look at the addiction cycle aspect of it and what i do in my clinical practice is i'm i'm promoting uh reduced carbohydrate to so many of my patients um and what i do is i do comprehensive blood work and i look for signs when resistance you know, the early signs of insulin resistance. And then I show them what that means and where it leads. And then I tell them, stop eating carbs and you can turn it around. It yeah. gets better. And the, the 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 conundrum, and there's research on this now, is that 
when you cut carbs really low, your brain has to find another fuel. So it starts burning ketones that you're made that are made internally. Your liver converts fat into ketones and the brain sucks that out of the blood and burns it. And the brain loves ketones. And everything that goes on in the brain gets better when it starts burning ketones versus glucose, including mental health problems, mood disorders. There's a book that was just published recently uh, talking about all this brain metabolism. And the thesis of the author is that every disorder in the brain, from mood disorder to ALS to Parkinson's to Alzheimer's, is because of a metabolic dysfunction in the neurons. Everything we know about ketones is that it improves the metabolic function of the neurons. So we're we're getting into the area now where people are publishing evidence that cutting the carbs out of your diet gives you benefits, not, not just metabolically in relation to things like diabetes, but also in terms of mental function, mental health. So the irony here is you have you know, trauma, PTSD, anxiety, and you self-medicate with these sugary, high-carb treats, that's actually making it worse, right? If you want to make it better, you eliminate all those things from your diet and get into ketosis. Yes. So, but that's, you know, it takes, it's hard. It's hard for people to to get over that. When I first did it, I was a severe sugar addict. And I, I remember the struggle to shake off that sugar addiction at yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Wow. Well, Jay, what is the name of that book you just mentioned? I was afraid you were going to ask. <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'd have to go in here and dig it up. But. Okay. Well, maybe maybe at some point you can just email me the name of the sure. book and the author. Yeah. And yeah. when this recording goes to... It's a pretty... Uh, it's not a very easy book to read. It's a challenging book. It's a lot of it is, you know, you know, master's level discussion about physiology and stuff. Yeah. So it's not a popular book that a lot of people are going to pick up and read over the vacation, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Beach reading. Yeah, exactly. I totally get it. Um, but, a few years ago, well, four years ago, I had a, um, I guess it's called a Mike's Ullman. I had a, tumor growing in my heart mm-hmm. and I had it removed. It was five centimeters mm-hmm. in my heart. So it was huge, huge. Yeah. But while I was in surgery, I had a stroke. Right. And of course they, they don't know that until you're in recovery because yeah. there's no symptoms of, of, cause it's a neurological thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I spent three months in the, Um, Ottawa Rehab Hospital Um, and fortunately it was just a partial stroke so I was in recovery pretty quickly and when I when I was discharged and went home I started reading pretty all the time all the time reading books on neurology because I was really kind of impressed with how the brain operated like because I had what what they refer to as left side neglect which means you know I can't see things on the left I mean I can see things on this is what interests me I could see 
what was on my left side, but my brain didn't recognize it. So I thought that was really strange. Like how could, but if somebody said, oh, Angelina, there's a glass on your left side. I look and then I'll see it, right? If somebody had mentioned it to me, then I would see it. So I was quite curious about how the brain operated. And I ended up reading a lot of books on neurology. I started listening to podcasts on neurology. And this led me to, I was a vegetarian at the time. I had been a vegetarian for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so it led me to reintroducing meat back into my diet because the research said that if you eat meat, it's brain food. You know, forget about these other little powdered stuff to give you brain brain food. Just eat a good steak. Yeah. So I switched and I started looking at eating, you know, if I was to eat fish, then I would look at wild fish. If I was eating meat, then I would look at wild meat. If I didn't have access to that, I would look at, you know, grain finished or um cattle that wasn't fed corn and all the other stuff that they're being fed. So I started looking at cleaner meat and eating, even eating organs. Um, mm-hmm. I know as a Dene, I remember, I mean, I never saw it. I just heard stories what my family told me, but, and when they killed a caribou, they would drain the blood and they would drink the blood. That was one yep. of the, while it was warm, they would do that. So we, we ate all the whole, you know, like from nose to tail of the wild animal. And so I started to, as best as I could, replicate that and started mm-hmm. eating wild food. And in mm-hmm. fact, the first time my husband met my family, it was my mother's 90s, I don't know, 95th birthday or something. And he was served um, smoked muskrat. <laughs> And it was just like this, you know, it was all curled up and, um, you know, but he didn't leave me. So he ate that and he was a good sport about it. But I mean, we had a lot of wild food while I was growing up. And so I felt that it was a natural thing for me to go back to eating that. Mm-hmm. But we're in a we're in a situation now in communities where there's high poverty not a lot of First Nations people are hunting and fishing in my area anyway. I mean, they do some, but it's not, it's not readily available to a lot of people. Um, so in that instance, how would somebody change their diet and get into ketosis and start to reverse their diabetes? How, what would you recommend they first do. So I read a really interesting paper recently on the evolution of gut. Mm. And it talked about all the different animals and the what their guts looked like, the anatomy of the gut. Yeah. Some animals have four stomachs, for instance, and you know, on and on. We are carnivores. We have the gut of a carnivore. We're not meant to eat all these plant foods. We're not designed to eat them. We can, which gives us an evolutionary survival advantage Mm -hmm. so that if you can't get your preferred food, you can eat some other non-preferred food and survive for a while until you get your preferred food. 
So we're designed to be meat eaters and fish eaters, right? Uh, we are the only species that has to be told what to eat. Every other animal in kingdom come uh, knows what to eat instinctively and doesn't eat the wrong thing and doesn't make themselves sick eating the wrong thing. We're the only ones that do that. And we're supposed to be the smartest. How did that happen? Right? There's something fundamentally wrong here. Yeah. I was a vegetarian when I discovered I had diabetes. I've been vegetarian for 17 years. I thought, yay, I'm the eating the healthy diet, you know, I'm gonna mm. live forever. And uh, you know, you meat eaters, you're you're subspecies. You I don't like you, you're not smart, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I had this attitude, right? Mm. And it was born out of ignorance because quite honestly, I had not really looked into nutritional science. Hadn't just kind of accepted the, these propagandas, you know, ideology stuff that's all, all around us. Mm. At this point, I'm absolutely sure that there's a global anti-meat agenda at work telling us, you know, starts out with religion, don't eat meat because of religious things. Then that doesn't convince the world. So then it's bad for your health to eat meat. And you have all this crazy stuff about harm of meat, like, like the uh, UN or the WHO committee that said meat causes cancer, which is a complete lie. It's a complete lie. They they that was a totally corrupt process. Uh, to now, uh, if you eat meat, you're harming the planet. Yes. Come on, give me a break. A cow <laughs> grazing on wild grasslands is harming the planet. You you must not. You must never have left the concrete jungle of a city to understand what that actually looks like. You know. Mm. So I I think. The, the shift of people away from meat to a so-called plant-based diet is counter to what our evolution designed us to eat. We were designed to eat meat and animal products, right? Yeah. So we, I, was, I became very interested in traditional diet. You know, I remember eating dried moose meat and things like that when I was a kid up north. Mm-hmm. And obviously, living in an environment, you're not going to find too much meat, moose meat around. Uh, so what I advise First Nations people is eat a diet that mimics your traditional diet. If you can't get moose, eat pork or beef or any other type mm-hmm. of meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and avoid, more importantly, avoid the foods that were introduced that were not part of the traditional diet. And And I'm Sorry to say, Bannock is not part of the traditional diet. You have to go to pre-Bannock yes. diet to get healthy, to get healthy, you know, because I often say to people, well, where did your ancestors grow the wheat and how did they mill it and, you know, produce the flour to make your Bannock? You know, what? how did that happen in the, when they were chasing the buffalo around the plains, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, so people have to use their brains to get themselves in, into that uh, orientation to what did my ancestors eat, and one of the interesting things that you know, I became very interested in traditional diet everywhere I go. I've always found that there is a centrally important fat in every location where mm-hmm. you look at traditional diet. Yeah. You know, and I, I remember eating in someone's home way, way up in the north end of BC, uh, near Iskid, I think it was, and uh, on the table was some salmon. And um, uh, I believe it was moose meat and a big tub of bear fat. Right. And 
you took the bear fat and you spread it on the meat and the salmon as you ate it. Because when you eat a, a meat-based diet, you want to be burning fat rather than protein. And right. everywhere you go, you find traditional practices to conserve and preserve fat and to value that as the central part of a diet. So it's a fascinating area when you get into it. Uh, and the striking thing about it is the nutritional wisdom. Mm. You know, of the ancestors, their nutritional wisdom was yeah. amazing. In every environment you find Indigenous people, they figured out what were the healthy foods to eat and how to manage that. Yeah. And they didn't have chronic disease. They yes. didn't. You know, they didn't have diabetes and heart disease and these things that plague us now. They weren't obese. You know, they were fit, healthy, and they they, they lived on 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 a species specific diet, the diet you're meant to eat as a human. The stuff we eat now is complete rubbish. It's so much. It, yeah. It's just remarkable. And that includes the food guide. You know, the food guide that oh, tells the pyramid. You, yeah. Yeah. All these grains and yeah. greens. You know what? I, I often have this conversation with patients. They say, well, I'm trying to be more plant-based. I say, well, did it occur to you that those plants don't want to be eaten? And, and nobody ever thinks of that. Uh, they can appreciate that animals will fight and run away to avoid being eaten. Yeah. But plants have been around for millions of millions of years before animals arrived on the planet. And they developed sophisticated anti-nutrient defenses against predators. And this is why grazing animals are careful what they eat. And we, we've lost that wisdom. You know, we, mm -hmm. we eat all the stuff that, uh, you know, we're, we think is good for us. And it's not, you know, all these beans and grains and, you know, high oxalate foods, for instance, everybody loves spinach. They put it in their smoothies, celery in the smoothies. Yeah. Those foods are full of oxalate, yes. which the plant has made to try and poison you. And here we are gulping it down, you know. It, yeah. When you when you actually get, you know, when you've taken the red pill and you you you're out of the matrix of the craziness of nutritional advice, it just looks so bizarre to see yeah. what people are doing and what they're told to do, and what what people believe are the healthy practices. It's just the it's it's a it's the complete reverse of what we've been taught, basically. Yeah, I get so, that. Yeah. So in my case, for twenty years now. I eat a keto diet full of meat, uh, lots of red meat. I, I catch my own fish. I catch wild salmon, uh, halibut, um, cod, you know, really good wild fish. So I eat those and uh, very little plant food, you know, and I'm fitter, healthier than I was 20 years ago. And it's for me, it's been a lifesaver. It's transformed my life. And I, I this is what I try and impart to my patients. You know, I, I tell, I, I live by example. I tell them what I do. Yeah. And if I can do it, you can do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you think a lot of the switch from, well, I mean, I, definitely there's a lot of variables why, you know, indigenous people have switched from traditional diets, wild food to off the shelf food, you know, canned and packaged and preserved do you think the marketing, you know, the propaganda, like the marketing, like we mentioned, the the uh, food pyramid had something to do with it? And I, I know, you know, when I look through the history, like, for example, milk, milk 
was really pushed hard on people and people in, I remember being in Peru and they were serving milk to the school children because everybody believes that milk has high concentrate of calcium you need for your bones, your teeth. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting the feeling based on what I've been reading that it's a lot of propaganda. And yep. so how do we combat those propaganda um, that's coming to us all the time. And parents want to be good parents and give their children healthy food. How do they distinguish between what's propaganda and what's real healthy for their children? You know, it, it people are confused about nutrition yeah. and it's by design because the big money moneyed interests benefit from that confusion. That confusion allows you to go down the middle aisles of the grocery store and fill your cart with all these manufactured, highly processed rubbish food because you've been bombarded with propaganda telling you that it's fine and healthy and good for you to eat this rubbish, including the food guide. You know, it's got all these grain products in there, which... Humans are not meant to eat grain. The The advent of agriculture is a recent development in human evolution, human history, and we have not changed in a way that allows us to properly digest and eat those foods. I'm constantly telling my patients, those foods are for birds and rodents. You don't look like a bird or a rodent to me, right? And meanwhile, this is what's being pushed, grains, pulses, all these things. And... Uh, that you know, it, it's it's so difficult to convince people otherwise. I think it was Mark Twain who said, "It's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled." And everybody has been fooled for decades mm. by by the big moneyed interests, the big agricultural concerns, the producers of grain, grain products. Vegetable oils, which are should not be part of the human diet, sugar, you know, all these products are produced and marketed by big, huge, wealthy corporate interests. And they control look at how much of mainstream media advertising comes from junk food. Mm. Junk food, and in the US, I've reading recently that three quarters of mainstream media advertising comes from the pharmaceutical industry. Three quarters. So of the remaining quarter, a big proportion of that is junk food. Yeah. Both of them benefit from these, you know, misaligned diets that people eat. Uh, the chronic disease benefits the pharmaceutical industry and the junk food industry, shoveling that food out and convincing people they should eat it. Everybody goes home rich, right? Yeah. And yeah. While the, the, the epidemics of chronic disease get worse and worse. So... How do you, what's the counter narrative? Well, it's, you know, I'm getting old and grouchy, you know, because I've lost patience with people who should know better. Mm. Because at this point in time, there's enough research. Research has evolved over the last 20 years. When I first started looking into it, it was hard to find any research on low carb or keto diet. Mm. It was virtually non-existent. 
But over the last 20 years, there's been a, a big body of research to the, to the extent that the American Diabetes Association uh, last year published a guideline for low-carb diet for physicians to use with diabetics. Now, that's a huge step forward for yeah. a big organization that gets all its funding from drug companies, right? Mm. So what I'm thinking now is all these smart, <clears throat> highly educated people who should at this point know better yeah. don't because they're corrupt. I think it's it's a question of corruption now. The corruption of all that money and all that influence from the industries that benefit for it. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a saying called uh, Hansen's razor. You've probably heard it said like this. Don't blame malice if something can be explained by stupidity, right? Mm -hmm. well, I've coined Jay's razor. Don't blame stupidity if something can be explained by corruption. <laughs> because I think that's what's going on. And it happens at all levels. Consider the food guide. The food guide's not a scientific document. It's a government document. It's a government policy document. And government isn't just a pure scientific uh, 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 institution. It's got multiple influences that go into everything government does. And the influence of, of um, all the different sectors of agriculture and food production put pressure on the government when it comes to a food guide. Yeah. So I don't think, I, I think the food guide needs to be tossed out. I don't think it does anybody any good. I think it, it, when you look at the current food guide, by the way, I know the director general that produced the current food guide, he's a vegetarian. And uh, th this, I think, helps explain why you can't find any meat on the plate, you know, that they yeah. produce. So I, I, I start ranting and I go on and on and on. And I sometimes do this with patients and they leave my office thinking that I'm some kind of nut job. But, <laughs> but I, I, I'm at the point now where I'm quite frustrated uh, at the enormity of the task of getting people to understand that they've been fooled, that they're being fooled, and that mm -hmm. they need to fix it because their life depends on it. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. hard to get them to think otherwise. I get that. Um, so I want to just move a little bit towards um, what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? I know, you know, in my family, my brother is married to a Blackfoot in the Pagan Reserve, and they do um, ceremonies like the Sundance. And they fast for four days to do that. And it's quite a, uh, a pretty, pretty strong, uh, I think, extreme thing, right? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? It's fascinating because getting back again to ancient traditional wisdom, right. every culture you find, every culture you study, they have fasting traditions. Yeah. Traditional periods of fasting. Um, and there's a reason for that. Fasting is good for you. Um, people that do, uh, uh, you know, uh, time-restricted feeding, you know, uh, where they extend their daily fast. Um, this is what I do. I don't eat breakfast. Yeah. I My first meal is lunch, and then I have dinner. So my fast, my window of eating time is about less than eight hours. And the reason that that's, that, that that's healthy is has been explored now with science. In fact, somebody got the Nobel Prize 
on a related topic here. It's that when you're fasting, the housekeeping at the cellular level in your body, the cleaning up of the broken bits and tidying up and, you know, uh, getting rid of damaged proteins and things like that accelerates when you're fasting. So you get a benefit at the cellular level from extending your daily fast or going, you know, having a, a period of fasting. Mm. And th there's been research now coming out on this. There was one study where they looked at women and breast cancer and the women that had the longest daily fast had the lowest rates of breast cancer. Wow. Wow, that's that's really interesting stuff. I mean, I know that, um, well, you know, for fasting with somebody that has diabetes, is it possible for them to do that um, without going into shock? Well, it depends. Yeah. Um, if I have, you know, I, 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 when I, if I find a di, if I see a diabetic patient and they're on multiple drugs, uh, and I try and get them shifted onto a low carb diet, you have to watch the drugs because the combination of low carb and drugs can drop the blood sugar too low. Yeah. So you have to be careful what drugs people are on. And there are some drugs, new diabetic drugs that you cannot fast. You cannot eat low carb or you'll end up with diabetic ketoacidosis, Yes. Um, which normally you wouldn't get with type two diabetes, but these drugs can precipitate that. And I know I know somebody who did a fast while on one of these drugs and she ended up in the ICU with uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. So you have to be careful with the drugs. You have to know which ones uh, to, to reduce or eliminate and uh, how to manage that going forward. Yeah. So something where diabetics can fast is yeah. just a question of what drugs they're on and uh, being careful not to mix the wrong kind of drugs. And with, with, fast. with most doctors know about which drugs will be, which would have a negative effect if you're fasting. Like I think my husband was just recently diagnosed with diabetes and he's on insulin and his doctor was talking to him about putting him on a uh, new drug. I think it was called Ox. What did it was? Is, um, it's OZ. Uh, Ozempic. Yeah. Ozempic. Yeah. Yeah. Ozempic is okay. Yeah, you can you can fast on that one. Uh, you take it's an injection. You take it once a week. Right. And it's, it, some people use it just for weight loss now because it's uh, you shed a few pounds on it if you if you use that drug. Right. But any any drug, uh, you you have to be careful because the combination of those drugs and the uh, Fasting can get you into low, uh, too low a blood sugar zone. Right. Um, Ozempic's not the worst one. The SGLTP2 inhibitors, the ones that cause you to pee the glucose out in your urine, are the ones that can get you into serious trouble. Okay. Uh, it's, it's the safest one is metformin, and that's a pretty standard. Yes. Fashion. A lot of people are on metformin. If you're on metformin, you're going to be fine if you're yeah. fasting or cutting carbs. Anything else, you have to be a bit careful. And SGLTP2 inhibitors, you have to avoid if you're going to do that. Yeah. And, and those drugs, they exemplify to me the irony of how we approach diabetes because a drug that causes you to pee the glucose out of your system yeah. makes 
for me, the question is, why are you putting it in there if you're just going to pee it out? Mm. You know, I eat the carbs if you're just going to pee the glucose out anyway. Yeah. You're not going to use it. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's just it's an example of how ridiculous the current approach to managing diabetes is. Uh, when 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 it it we know now with pretty good evidence that eliminating carbs gives you more benefit than virtually any of the drugs you can get. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly going to try. Well, I've been you know trying to get my husband to get on to that that playing field of just getting rid of carbs. You know, I would throw away, <laughs> I throw away cereal and he goes, why did you throw my cereal away? Well, did you look at that? What was in it, it was like 113% sodium in one of them. And well, uh, <laughs> don't, don't worry about sodium. Don't worry about sodium. Oh, okay. Well, he also has know. high blood pressure. It's another one of the lies. Oh. So, so the things that drive blood pressure are carbs. Yeah not sodium driving blood pressure. Once you've got high blood pressure and you've, you've messed up your metabolism with carbs, yeah. then sodium can be a problem. Right. But one of the things people overlook when they cut carbs, they actually have to increase their sodium intake or they'll end up with side effects. Right. The, reason for, the reason for that is the high carb diet causes your kidney to retain sodium. And when you reverse that by cutting carbs the sodium flows out in your urine and you have to make sure you're getting enough to replace it mm, well that is really good to know <laughs> well this is yeah. Yeah. yeah the other thing about sodium is uh if your sodium if your intake of sodium is really low it's dangerous mm-hmm. the risk of blood goes up but if you're otherwise healthy and no blood you don't have high blood pressure there's almost no upper limit on how much sodium you can eat. And the current government regulations are actually in the low zone where there's increased risk and they don't listen. They won't listen. I've met with the people in Health Canada that set the sodium policies and they did not want to talk about the research that goes contrary to what they believe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's quite a struggle. That's a challenge because I know, I I mean, look at the cigarette industry. Right. I mean, for the years, the medical um, or government, I mean, there were doctors smoking and saying, this is my favorite brand of cigarettes, you know, commercial back in the day. Right. So I, no wonder oh, we're confused. Right. <laughs> well, 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 just walk into any hospital and look at the vending machines and what they're serving in the coffee shops and yeah. It's just the worst kind of rubbish. And then look what they serve patients in the hospitals. Oh my god, I was yeah, I was a patient. <laughs> I was a patient and my cardiologist came in just while I was having my lunch and he looked at it and he says, "You don't feel like eating?" And I said, "Doctor, would you eat this?" And he says, "No, I had lunch already." <laughs> but he wouldn't touch it. <laughs> I had a patient who ended up in the hospital. And he insisted that they give him a keto meal. Like he insisted, insisted. Yeah. And they, they bring bring him trays of crap all the time. And finally they said, okay. And they brought him a tray. His wife sent me a photo of this. Yeah. On the tray was one hard-boiled egg. That was their version of a keto meal. <laughs> it was keto. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my 
my goodness. Well, there's a lot of education to be done, uh, you know. Well, well, the problem is they follow policies. Yes. They have institutional policies. Where do the policies come from? They come from the Canada Food Guide. And the Canada <laughs> Food Guide, when they publish it, they say this is a, a food advice for healthy people. Well, yeah. most people aren't healthy. But they still promote the Canada Food Guide and the diabetic diet and the heart and stroke diet. And all these diets are basically based on the Canada Food Guide. Yeah. So that all comes down and people can't step out of line. You know, if you're if you're just a dietitian working in the, you know, in the bowels of a big hospital, you can't step out of line and say, hey, I'm I'm not going to serve sugar and pudding and crap to these people. I'm going to give them proper food. You can't do that. Yeah. So the whole system is rigged. Rigged yeah. against really yeah. is. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know what I was thinking as you were speaking, that I would like to see a J pyramid, food pyramid, <laughs> become become the norm. Because, you know, you've studied this stuff a lot, and I don't know what it would take to make that that become a reality, but that would be certainly something that would be worth it would be a great legacy well you know i was always being asked why haven't why haven't you written a book you know you should write a book mm. well i have a hard time conceiving a book how a book would work because everything you need to know i can write on one piece of paper yeah so yeah. what am i going to fill up a book with you know mm. and My food pyramid is pretty simple. I mean, I've seen other people. There's so many people now in the media, in the in the uh, you know social media, putting stuff out. I've seen good pyramids, you know, where meat is the number one food, and yeah, something, it goes down to very small sizes of a uh, animal or plant products. Yeah, people have done that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I I you know when I first started, you know, getting in the public domain on this topic. 20 years ago, I was unique. I was unique in many ways. There weren't any physicians out there saying, food guide is rubbish, you shouldn't be eating all that crap, and you should be treating diabetes with low-carb diet. Yeah. Now there's tons, you know, thousands of people, and yeah. social media has evolved, and the, there's access to thousands and thousands of people. I don't bother blogging anymore because yeah. I don't feel like I have anything unique to say anymore, you know? Yeah. There's, there's so many people that are doing a better job now communicating on social media. So I just focus on my clinical work. I just work full-time clinical and I I change the lives of one patient at a time now. Yeah. Well, yeah, well the, I I hear what you're saying, but at the same time don't sell yourself short because I've heard some of your your um, you know, YouTube interviews. I've heard, you know, other things you have said and You know, with people, they need to hear that stuff over and over and over again before it sinks in. Yeah. You know, and um, and I think you've got a lot of credibility, and you're also pretty brave to be speaking out against the, the food pyramid because, like you say, a lot of people won't dare contradict what is already established. Right? They they won't go there. Yeah, um, they didn't. They were quite on. They were quite nervous about me when I worked in Health Canada. <laughs> the, the Food Guide office. They were uh, very, very anxious about what I was doing. Yeah. And um, uh, when the uh, the new, because I was 
getting publicity. You know, I did the study in Alert Bay and yeah. they made that uh, documentary called My Big Fat Diet. And it got aired on CBC. And, yeah, I watched and, that. <laughs> yeah. And the food guide people were freaking out. Mm. Of, of all government publications, next to your tax form, the food guide is the most widely distributed federal government publication. And Health Canada is very proud of that, right? Yes. And yeah. here's this guy that works in Health Canada saying things <laughs> contrary to the food guide. Yeah. That's blasphemy, you know? You get burned at the stake for that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I think there was probably a big party when I left Health Canada, you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But I think that that's really, really brave that you did that. Um, so... You know, I think uh, before we, well, I kind of lost track. I kind of lost track of our time. Um, uh, I want you to talk about what you. I know your son is studying medicine now in Ireland. Um, <laughs> seems like a smart boy. He's taking after his dad. Um, I would like you to talk about what you see your legacy being. Well, my son is the top student in his class in the top med school in Ireland. And uh, he's been raised in a household where we don't have sugar and uh, we eat fairly keto. The kids eat more carb than I, I prefer they eat. And then as a teenager, you know, he get off the, the rails and, you know. Yeah. But he's had he's been raised with a very healthy diet compared to what most people eat. And he's doing brilliantly. And I think a lot of that has to do with brain health, you know, proper brain nutrition. Uh, the other thing, of course, is they get their brains from their mothers, right? So that, <laughs> that's a big part of it. Um, and, you know, when he's, he'll tell me, oh, well, this is what they're te teaching us about cholesterol and heart disease and everything. And I tell them, tell them what they want to hear. Don't rock the boat until you're out, out <laughs> on your own. Right? Yes. Just, you know, keep your head down right now. Yeah. So he actually wants to be go into cardiology, and uh, he's he's preparing. He's graduating in May. Yeah, May. Wow. And he he's being invited to interview at Mayo Clinic, Yale, Harvard, uh, Mount Sinai, all these big wow. U.S. Uh, training ho teaching hospitals. So he's going to end up somewhere really good. I'm just worried they'll keep him down there. I want him to come home. Yes, yeah, yeah. Want to be, you know, practice in an enlightened way, yeah. given background here with me. Yeah. So in terms of my legacy, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't want any monuments or statues, you know. I, <laughs> yeah. I you know, my feeling really is I I did a lot uh -huh. and I did what was important. And now there are so many other people doing as good or better uh, at getting the message out that I feel like I've, you know, I've pushed on it as hard as I can for as long as I can. And now I'm quite content doing it at a individual basis. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I had unlimited resources and I didn't have to pay the bills by doing, you know, clinical work, seeing patients on a day, daily basis, <clears throat> sure. You know, I would, you know, in my fantasy life, I would set, I would start some kind of, you know, large nutrition program targeting First Nations to try and get the message to them that they're being misled by what they are being currently told. 
And I would go to work on something like that. But the reality is I, I have to pay the bills. I've got expensive kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. And, and I'm happy doing what I'm doing now. I, I, I have conversations about this every day in the office with patients. Yeah. yeah. And I and I think that is really great because how many other First Nations are having those conversations, right? And I th- and I and I I get your point of you know one patient at a time, and they can spread the word in their family. So if you're talking to one patient, they mm-hmm. have got a family of six, seven, ten people. In my case, it was sixteen in my family. Oh, wow. <laughs> You know, so it would have really gone far. But nowadays we have small families, and I think that's a good way to go. Um, you know, patient at a time, and um, and let them talk to people in their family, in their community, and they'll see by by example, like you're doing. Like they will see the patients losing the weight, you know, recovering from um, diabetes, stabilizing it, you know, working in an area that's that's obvious to people that know them you know they're so, yeah you know i i sometimes feel like johnny appleseed you know the johnny yeah. appleseed yeah. traveling around throwing the seeds out i occasionally run into somebody and realize that something happened that affected them i remember i was up in hay river mm. a few years ago, near where i was born and uh I, it was some first nations event And a woman came up to me and she said, I heard you give a talk in Edmonton, you know, blah, blah. I couldn't actually even remember because I was doing a lot of lectures. Yeah. And she said, she said, the message I got from you was I should take sugar out of my kid's diet. And she said, we lived across the street from a 7-Eleven. And my daughter, she said, my teenage daughter was putting on weight and we were having all kinds of difficulties, behavioral problems and everything. She said, I completely eliminated sugar. She slimmed right down. She mm-hmm. turned into this lovely, well-adjusted uh, mm-hmm. woman, and I credit the change in diet. Yeah. You know, wow. So I I run across these stories. You know, I and I love I love hearing that. You know, I yeah. love it when people come back to me and say something you said really helped me. Yeah. So yeah, and, you know, the other thing is I used to lecture in the medical school. And I used to do a big annual lecture. It was really well attended. Professors, other people would come. Wow. And, then, and then the director of that program retired. And the new director didn't invite me back because they didn't like the low carb because it was contrary to the conventional thinking. Right, right. right. Yeah. That kind of stuff. But then one day I was in, I was in a meeting and uh, it was the, some doctors there that were doing low carb. And this young woman was doing it. And I asked her, how did you how did you get started? And she said, when I was in med school, I went to a lecture. And this doctor talked about low carb. And it was me. That got going. Wow. That's amazing. Well, so if you were to say, um, you know, have a message out to Indigenous people listening. Because I got quite a few indigenous people listening to my podcasts. Right. If you were to have a, have a, a message go out to them from you, you know, mm-hmm. what three, three advice you would give them three main things. Well, 
you know, we're all very aware of decolonizing, right? Mm. You need to decolonize your diet. Get back to the fundamentals of your traditional diet. And even if you can't populate your menu with the actual traditional foods, use similar foods that you can find in the store. So that that is so important. Yeah. Get sugar out of your house and out of your kid's diet. Sugar mm -hmm. is probably the single most harmful carb. Yeah. It's, it, it's terrible. And the third thing is get the vegetable oils out of your diet. All these supposedly heart-healthy oils mm -hmm. are actually harmful. They're yeah. harmful. And the traditional fats that come from animal sources and dairy sources are actually the healthy fats, the ones you should be eating. So there are three simple concepts there yeah. that you can work on. You know, it's, it doesn't happen instantly, especially with kids. Try to get them to shift their diet when they're addicted to sugar. It's hard. <laughs> Yeah. With sugar, though, you know, what I tell people is, you know, everybody, people struggle to get off sugar. Use the artificial sweeteners as a crutch. Use it as a crutch to get off sugar. Sugar is more harmful than any potential harm from the artificial sweeteners. And then reduce those over time. You know, you can wean yourself that way. Yeah. So that's another word of advice. That, I think those are really absolutely great. I mean, because they're simple and they're not costly and it's something they can implement today. Yeah. You know, the next meal you have, this is what you're going to put on your plate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think it's, it's uh, exceptional advice because one, it's one, simple. One, one thing people say, well, uh, you know, eating steak and lobster all the time, that's expensive. Well, you don't increase your protein intake. You keep it the same, but you make your protein sources animal-based protein sources. So it can be hamburgers, fine as a meat. Yeah. Um, hot dogs. You know, when you talk about eating snout to tail, that's what a hot dog is. They've ground up all the stuff people don't normally want to eat and put it in the hot dog. That's a way of eating snout to tail. <laughs> Mine is the, the bun. Yeah, no bun. Uh, and, and you know what? A lot of times I'll grab lunch at Costco and I'll order one of their hot dogs with no bun. And that's my lunch. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and bear in mind that it's not a high protein diet. It's a high fat diet. So you're that's not, a good distinction. You keep your protein levels adequate, but you replace the carbs with fat. fat. Yeah. And those are the fats you want from animal sources. So butter, lard. I save my bacon fat. I use that. The fatty cuts of meat, the fatty fish, you save all that and use all that. Yeah. Uh, dairy fats are good too. Cheese, cream, butter. But milk has lactose. That's a, that's a, that's a sugar. Yeah. So I'm not keen on milk. And yogurt still has too much lactose. Yeah. So those are ones I tend to avoid. Yeah. But the dairy fats are actually good for you. Wow. This is sounds, that sounds really great. And I... I'm so grateful that I had this chance to talk to you. And usually my internet is kind of bad because I live kind of in the outskirts of Ottawa and uh, I have very unstable internet, but I'm fortunate I only lost you once for a brief second, but I am really grateful that you've taken this time to talk to me, Jay. 
And I think there's a lot of information here for people to, um, to chew on <laughs> and think about, you know, and make some choices in their life to extend their longevity. You know, a lot of things on social media are talking about extending longevity, but we don't want to just extend the longevity. We want to live, have a well-being so that, you know, if we extend our life, we're living healthier and we're mm -hmm. happier. Our mind is balanced. And that's, that's what we should be striving for. Yeah, it's, not, not, just, it's not just lifespan, it's yeah. health span. Exactly. Health span. Yeah. Keto diet gives you both. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So I think that kind of wraps us up. And unless you have like um, one more word or sentence of wisdom, I just don't want to let you go. <laughs> have you say something? Traditional diet. Traditional diet. Traditional diet. Okay. Pre-Bannock traditional diet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I heard in an interview you gave to someone, they said, well, you said to somebody that was interviewing you, I forget who it was, and you, and she said, well, you know, First Nations can't eat this stuff. You know, how are they supposed to eat? You know, they're too poor or whatever. They're not hunting anymore. And you said, well, just think, like, where are the you know, the avocados or the tomatoes growing on First Nations reserves. <laughs> like, you know, they, they never had that. In my family, we never had that. We never had a garden. We had just the animals that roamed around and fished in the lake, swam in the lake. So, yeah, traditional, traditional diet is where we need to get back to. I totally agree with you. So that is it for us. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. nice to see you. <laughs> All right. You. Goodbye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye.